hello, friends. Welcome to the latest episode of In With The Old. We're a video podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. Today's episode is a bit of a surprise. So last week, if you haven't seen it already, we got to interview Dr. Richard Everback out of Trinity in Illinois, and it was a wonderful interview. And during that process, he brought up a lot of great content that Dr. Tim and I looked at each other and said, you know, there's a lot more to unpack here. We just touched the the tip of the iceberg as it were. So both for this week and next week, we have kind of bonus episodes going into some deeper discussion of the myths and mistakes that Dr. Averbeck brought up. I'm joined today as ever to go into this discussion by Dr. Tim Howe. Dr. Tim, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well, Brian. And uh, what a what a joy it was to have Dr. Everbeck last yeah. week and to continue this discussion. So I'm excited for today's episode. Yeah, it was a, a real pleasure to like just listen to him. And uh, listeners, I really hope it was beneficial to you. We want to use these interviews as a way to kind of highlight just some of the great scholars and great scholarship that is going on about the Old Testament to show that, hey, it's not just these two you know young PhDs that are excited about the Old Testament. There are many people that just love God's word and are trying to help us understand it at deep levels. So today's episode, Tim, right, we're going to be touching on something that Dr. Aberbach mentioned just briefly, and that's how we conceive of the law. So I can point to, and I'm not going to, because the point of this is not to name and shame, but right, I, I have my two just off screen here, Watchers, is my bookshelf. And I can point to several books on that bookshelf that if I open up their section on the law, they're going to say, hey, the Old Testament law was divided into three primary sections, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. And depending on right the author, they might use slightly different terms, but they're all going to agree in essence that the Old Testament law actually had three parts. And we can trace this back in church history, actually for quite a while. In fact, if you go to the Westminster Confession of 1646 and chapter 19, it'll actually use these categories of moral and ceremonial as distinct sections of the law. Now, we think that division is a myth, don't we, Dr. Tim? Yeah, we absolutely do, and mainly for the reason that neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament ever divides the law in that, those categories. And, and what's interesting is, is some scholars will recognize that, and, and they'll actually say this is not a biblical distinction that we're talking about. Uh, but what they come alongside and do is say, but it's a helpful distinction that helps us to understand the parts of the law that are no longer applicable or useful and the parts of the law that are. And, and that, again, and this is something we talked about with Dr. Everbeck, but we're going to highlight again today, even that, we believe, is a myth. Because, uh, yes, we can in one sense see that there's moral applications of the law, ceremonial and civil, but what we disagree with is that all of the law is not still useful for today. Uh, even as we're not under the law, we can still use it. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Excellent. So maybe to help us walk in, because... Tim, maybe our, our listeners have heard ideas similar to this, but maybe don't quite know what we mean by these categories. Uh, we want to walk this in a little yeah. bit. So when people make this claim that the law has these divisions, they're going to use something like moral, mm -hmm. ceremonial, civil. Uh, an example of a moral mm -hmm. law is going to be 
like what we find in the maybe latter half of the Ten Commandments, as well as many others. For example, you shall not murder, Exodus 2013. Well, that seems to be a pretty mm-hmm. good moral command, right? Uh, you shall not lie, things like this. These are commands that have a moral connotation to them. Ceremonial laws, mm-hmm. then, by contrast, it's going to be a good portion of the book of Leviticus, right? Especially those first chapters dealing with here's how you handle the sacrifices. Mm-hmm. By ceremonial, we mean things relating to ceremony of the, the temple and the sacrificial system. You could have, for example, mm-hmm. laws that deal with cleanliness or uh, uncleanliness. For example, Leviticus 12.2, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Well, they use the term mm-hmm. ceremonial, right? There doesn't seem to be, proponents of this view would say, a moral dimension to this command. It's just talking about ceremony. You're not fit for ceremony mm-hmm. for seven days. So that's what a ceremonial law would be. And then civil laws are recognizing the fact that this law that God gives Israel is, yes, given to them to be his people, to be a religion focused on worshiping him, but it's also a nation that has to have laws that governs mm-hmm. itself, right, just as a secular nation. And so you might have, mm-hmm. for example, Leviticus 19.15 is a judicial law. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. As I said, Leviticus 1915, Mm -hmm. that seems to be a good basis of a law code, right? So these are kind of our big ideas. These are our big divisions, moral, moral, ceremonial, and civil. Now, Tim, Mm -hmm. when I hear this division, though, my myth senses start tingling. And I'm going to coin this as a new (laughs) term, my myth senses. Because, listeners, uh, in, in theology, and I can point to several concepts that come to mind. We sometimes run into this problem of we have these neat ideas of neat categories of how things fit together. But often, Mm -hmm. as the expression goes, the devil's in the details. As soon as we start actually getting into the nitty gritty of how this would apply, we start running into issues. See, moral, ceremonial, civil, it's a tripartite law. We really like threes in theology and the study of the Bible. But it feels really neat doesn't it? At least to me, I go, this feels just too nice and clean. Theology rarely is so nice and neat and clean. At least that's how it comes off to me. Tim, how mm-hmm. about how about you? How's it come off to you? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it would be very convenient if it were true. Yeah. And uh and and yet, like we mentioned, it's it's not something we see either in the Old or New Testament. And and just to to maybe Uh, go a little bit further into some of the logic or the background, you know, the moral law supposedly is supposed to be this expression of God's moral character, uh, which is why, as you think of do not murder, do not lie, those instances, that's why those laws are supposed to be unchanging over time, irrespective of Israel's ceremonial existence or the, the nationhood or whatever, because the moral laws reflect God's unchanging character, therefore they are un- unchangingly binding, is sort of the logic. As opposed to the civil and the ceremonial, uh, if those are tied in some sense to Israel's sacrificial system or to Israel's nationhood in a, a biblical sense, um, then as Israel as a nation ceases to function in that way, or as the ceremonies because the temple ceases to exist, 
also ceased to exist. Um, if those things passed away, then the logic is that the moral law can remain in effect, whereas the civil and the ceremonial pass away um, with the, the biblical state of Israel. Yeah. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on with that, but that's at least some of the logic as to why people divide it that way, because then we can kind of, in one sense, and, and I don't want to be uncharitable, but we keep the things that we want to from the moral law, and then the other things that we think, well, that's weird, or that's you know part of an ancient culture or whatever, um, those are the things that, uh, that then pass away. Do you, do you feel like I explained that okay, Yeah, Brian? you did. And in fact, you, you brought up something, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention in kind of my summary. The, the proponents mm-hmm. of this view of the law would say, look, these three divisions are important because the moral law, God's moral commandments to people, do remain generation to generation. So anything moral in the Old Testament law remains binding, Dr. Tim, as you said. Um, but the ceremonial laws, that is tied specifically to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. So as soon as we're in the New Covenant, we can ignore those laws. And likewise, the judicial laws are tied to the ethnic nation of Israel. And unless that is our specific context, those laws no longer have binding force on us. So yeah, Mm -hmm. you you caught up on that. And I realized I forgot to add that in. So thank you for doing that. And yeah, I, I think that's really well put. And this division lets us pick and choose. Uh, the laws that we think Mm -hmm. still bind us. And we might begin wondering, why have we picked and chosen those laws? Have we picked the ones that are convenient for us? Have we picked the ones that are easy for us? Now, the argument back to us would be like, well, but you guys are just also kind of saying your your view. What's your reason for rejecting this tripartite division, knowing that it does have a history in Christian tradition and interpretation, even a very important role that many fairly famous Christian fathers and documents have supported. Uh, Tim, what are maybe some of our reasons and others like us in rejecting this tripartite view? Yeah. And uh, I love the way that Dr. Everbeck framed it last week. And I'm going to pick up on some of those ideas. The first and most important is that we do want to come from a biblical perspective that uh, is respective of tradition, and of course, we we can't help but come to the Bible through the lens of our interpretive tradition. We have to do that uh, by definition, but at the same time, we have to respect whenever we see something in tradition that seems to contradict how the Bible itself frames something, uh, we're looking to go to the source, right, to God's Word. So uh, we don't see that in the Old Testament itself, uh, but then, and this is where Dr. Everbeck was so valuable, I think, in the New Testament use of the Old Testament, uh, which for us should be, in one sense, our instructor, Mm -hmm. right? How did the apostles use the Old Testament? Uh, They didn't look to, say, the ceremonial and civil portions and say, oh, well, you know, we're not under the law, therefore those are no longer useful. We're just going to take, you know, the moral and, 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 you know, kind of hang our hat on that. No, they believed that you could find timeless principles, even from laws that they realized were no longer uh, effectual because we are in the new covenant. And so in, in that sense, our argument is we want to take seriously the way that the New Testament authors use the Old Testament itself. Uh, and, and we also think that's more respectful uh, and really builds upon the the categories that the Old Testament gives. And so what we're trying to do is take our cue from the New Testament authors, uh, even as we recognize we're not under the law, and that's important. 
we also recognize there is a continued usefulness of the law uh, that really transcends those categories. Exactly. Very well put. And in fact, that's going to be, we're going to continue this discussion next time, aren't we, Tim? Uh, and talking about that being under the law and how this applies to us. Um, right. But for today, let, let, here are some of the reasons why we would say we need to view the Bible as a literary unit. And uh, taking our cue from Dr. Averback, it is, we're going to start with the idea that the New Testament authors don't have these categories. In fact, the Bible never divides the law when it refers to itself it never goes well i'm only going to draw from this category or that category instead it always just talks mm -hmm. about god's law singular a unity mm -hmm. a, a unified document that we can draw valuable lessons from even as people want to mm -hmm. see these view these kind of three dimensions to it and going into that that's where some of the details become problematic because, see, I gave you all three laws as we started this discussion. But let's go back and look at them. Do they actually neatly fit into the categories of moral, ceremonial, and civil? For example, thou shalt not murder. That's a good moral command. Isn't that also a good civil command, though? Isn't that the bedrock of any stable <laughs> society is you need to have a society where people are not supposed to kill one another and that there are consequences for it? Likewise, partiality favoritism, that seems to be a good judicial law. But why is partialism wrong? Isn't it rooted in the idea that people are made in the image of God, that we all have this inherent value, right? That's moral. That's not just simply, right, judicial. Similarly, mm -hmm. we can look at the ceremonial laws. They're all about cleanliness, uncleanliness. But why? Why did Israel care so much about these things? Is it just for the sake of doing ceremony? Or is it because God has commanded these things, that it is rooted in his character, his holiness, his desire for Israel to be holy as he is holy, to be set apart mm -hmm. as he is set apart, right? It seems very nice and easy for us sitting this far back to go, oh, look, there's nice and neat categories. But the logic of why the laws are given doesn't support dividing them in these ways. They all are mm -hmm. interconnected. And similarly, and I do wonder, Tim, and this is a little bit off the cuff, but I do wonder if some of our insistence, mm -hmm. especially on like uh, judicial law being different from the others, is based on a Western Enlightenment idea of a separation between church and state that would be completely foreign mm -hmm. in an ancient concept. They had no idea of a separation. Those are one and the same, right? The religious structure of a nation is intimately tied into the running of that nation. Um, so even at that level, I kind of wonder, I'm like, I want, is this a modern problem that we have? Because we have different categories of thought as we come to the laws. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I I think that is an incredibly interesting topic, one that we should really spend some time on uh, at, at some point, just talking about the nationhood of Israel mm -hmm. um, and what that means. Uh, and I love how you stated early eth uh, earlier ethnic Israel, mm -hmm. um, because we do. I mean, for those of us who live in the United States, we live uh, in a not only a Western context, but in a Republican mm -hmm. context. And, and I don't mean that as in the party. I mean that as in we have a republic. And, uh, and for the Israelite people, they had a theocracy. I mean, they literally 
believe that God was their king and their ruler. And so there's some politically fundamentally different starting points uh, that that as we look at it, we can maybe parse out, oh, well, this is judicial. But they would have they would have looked at that. Uh, and I think you're exactly right and said, well, no, the reason that we have these laws is because they help us to be that distinct people of God uh, and, and because God uh, is holy. Right. I mean, he is his character is holy and therefore we are to be set apart. Now, uh, I think that set-apartness, or we would say that holiness, uh, looked different in their context, in that ancient Near Eastern context, than it does uh, in ours, or even than it did in the first century uh, when uh, the Holy Spirit gave birth to the mm-hmm. church, right? Um, but, but the fundamental principle is that holiness is still a standard. Um, and, and as circumstances change and as culturally set apartness might look different in different cultures, uh, and certainly in different political contexts, um, it's, it's fundamentally the same guidance that we have. It's the same command, be holy because I am holy. But yeah, I totally agree. Uh, we are again, more prone to see things as judicial or even for that matter, ceremonial. Yeah. Whereas for them, you couldn't, you couldn't separate, you know, for them, ceremony, cleanness and uncleanness. Uh, we look at that as ceremony. They look that as the, the access to God, uh, that they would continue to have. In other words, cleanliness was the key to continued enjoyment of God's presence, which of course, uh, it, it wasn't ceremony for the sake of ceremony. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, the, the, the British coronation where you wear the bright red costumes and then take them off and, and people think this, you yeah. know, it, it, that wasn't it. Like for them, uh, the moral, the civil, the ceremonial, all of it, uh, was was fundamentally fundamentally tied to their identity as Israelites, and through that, their identity as the people of God. Yeah, absolutely. And you, that's a really good point about the ceremonial laws as well, because you can read Leviticus, and we've joked right that Leviticus is the graveyard of Bible reading <laughs> plans. Because man, those first couple chapters, it's going through painstaking detail, right, on these sacrifices. Who lays their hand where? What parts get cut off and burnt? What parts, you know, get given over here? (laughs) The blood splattered over here. But what we don't often stop to reflect is, yes, it is painstakingly detailed. That's important. Mm -hmm. Because, see, this is not just Mm -hmm. ceremony, as you said really well, Tim. It's not just ceremony for the sake of ceremony. This is ceremony to call your attention to the seriousness of sin the desperate need of Mm -hmm. humanity for a savior, the grace that God is going to give and bestow upon his people, right? The details are supporting a deeper theological understanding of who God is. So to say that, oh, the ceremonial laws just kind of get waved away into the ether is not fair. And this leads us to kind of our, our third key point here, right? If we think the law has these three parts, We're going to cherry pick and we're going to miss the purpose and value of the law, right? We're going to not understand why God gave it in the way he gave it, why it meant what it did in that culture. And because that we're not actually going to be living out what Paul says, that all scripture is profitable. He said all, he didn't say just the moral laws, right? He didn't just say the fun stories. It's Leviticus. It's all scripture is profitable. And so uh, appreciating the law as a uni, I think helps us. I think it helps us to just again, off the cuff, it helps us in our witness. I think 
people we talk to rightly get offended and start pushing back when we start just selectively quoting Old Testament laws to them to advance a debate over here, maybe about sex, sexual relations, gender roles. And they go, you're just cherry picking a few laws, but you eat bacon, right? Uh, you're, you're going to cite this thing to me, but you wear clothes with bended, blended fabrics. I think they have a point if we have not really stopped to appreciate what is the law and have a good sense of why God gave it. Uh, we open ourselves up to some criticism if we are mishandling it and misapplying it. So if there's danger in misapplying it, Tim, maybe help us here. How do we actually start applying the law as a unity? What are some of the values of seeing it in this way? Yeah, well, Brian, I, th I think you're right. And as we think about applying the law, again, I love Dr. Everbeck's methodology, which is to say, let's look at how the New Testament does it. And, uh, and you picked up on this in our interview. Uh, the New Testament doesn't tell us how every single law applies, but it gives us tools and it gives us uh, a, a really the, the ability to say, let's do what the apostles did and not with their authority, of course, uh, but let's, let's use the Old Testament in the same way. And so here's, here's maybe some positive examples, and we can just try and do this, uh, do this as an example. So uh, we talked about this. But the ceremonial law, as well as really the, the civil law, they were all given in order to allow the people to live in God's presence, which from a New Testament perspective, we know is no longer located in a particular you know, geographical location. You can't say, well, God's presence is here, as you could in one sense with the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, but now, according to Paul, in both 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, we are the temple, both individually, our bodies, as well as the church as a whole. The church is a temple of the living God. And so when we think about holiness, uh, the idea of holiness is not, oh, well, if you eat something that makes you unclean, or you touch something that makes you unclean, or you wear something that makes you unclean. No, the, the idea of uncleanness now is truly in a spiritual sense of we want to be separated from the world. We, we want to intentionally uh, pull ourselves out of the world, even as we are sojourners and strangers within the world. And so uh, it, it's similar but different. It, it, it's an example that we see in terms of the laws of the Old Testament, uh, but it's something that we apply in a different sense. So there's continuity as well as difference, but we are still called to be holy. Um, so, so that's one example. Um, and then another one, and, and this is uh, th this is something that, as we read the law, I, I think can be uh, very helpful to us. When we think of the laws themselves, we're not only supposed to think of the law, but the logic that undergirds the law. Uh, and so, for instance, in, Deuteron in Deuteronomy 24, uh, I love that chapter because it, it gives us not just laws, but it gives us some of the reasoning behind the law. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, it says that a newly married man uh, is essentially exempt from war. Uh, so if someone has been married less than a year, let them stay with their wife for a year so they can enjoy the time with their wife and then let them serve. Uh, well, that shows us, right, that there is, uh, one, a, a premium on, on marriage and that there's supposed to be, by the way, not just a contractual agreement, but there's supposed to be enjoyment and love, uh, but also that there's a sense in which uh, the law preserves the the uh, 
the order that God made from the beginning uh, in terms of man and wife becoming one flesh, but also just a, a compassion that we see in the law, that God wants that to be enjoyed and protected. Uh, similarly, in Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 13, I love it that there's a law that basically says, uh, and this is going to be paraphrased, and I'm going to use kind of our own kind of parlance with it, but essentially, if someone owes you something, uh, and, and you they're holding something in security, or you have something that that someone else can use, but they owe you something. Uh, if you go to collect that, you basically, the law says, have to wait outside of their home, allow them to go get it, then to give it to you. And then, by the way, if they're poor and say they give you a valuable piece of clothing or something else that they need uh, for everyday purposes, they say, if you have that in your possession, don't keep it from the poor person overnight. Uh, at which point we see just in a few verses this idea of human dignity and worth being upheld not only in kind of the abstract sense of the Imago Dei, which is, of course, foundational, but in the everyday, okay, give the person the common decency uh, and respect and dignity of going and getting it themselves. In other words, respect their property, respect their dignity. And then if they need it that night, don't keep it. Uh, but rather give it back to them. And then it says, because that person will bless you because of your righteousness. Uh, in, in other words, even when we look at these so-called civil or, uh, civil or ceremonial laws, there is always a, not even just a moral component, but, but a component of true love of neighbor, that love of God and love of neighbor is threaded throughout all three of these supposed divisions. And because of that, we can use them as tools to help us in our everyday lives. Yeah, and I think that's really important to kind of see the underlying logic because that's mm -hmm. critical. One thing we haven't brought up, and I'll just briefly touch on, is if you look at what the law was supposed to do, right, be a law code for a nation, for a religion, for a people to follow after God, it is a short law code in some sense. There are actually laws for every single possible situation like we would have in law codes today. Instead, mm -hmm. it's a law code of these kind of basic principles that are supposed to lead you into an understanding of here's how God views life. Here are the things that he values and wants you then to emulate. And so, mm -hmm. Tim, I really like what you said because Deuteronomy shows us, it peels back the curtain a little bit and says, look, here are some of the underlying principles you need to internalize that will shape not just how you deal with this situation, but with other situations as well. And that's kind of how the apostles then walk in on the law uh, as they apply it to their unique situations. And so we, we walk through kind of how ceremonial and judicial maybe still are valuable to us. And then the moral laws or the so-called moral laws are very simple. God's commands and desires for his people don't change generation to generation. Um, we see his desire to love him and love our neighbor as ourself. And the New Testament, doesn't it get a ratcheted up a little bit higher, right? <laughs> we can think of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. We can think of the upper room, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Wow, that's taking a basic principle of the Old Testament, but now we're turning it up. As Dr. Averbeck said, because now with the Holy Spirit, we actually have that heart changed. And now God is desiring us to actually live that out at an even deeper and fuller level, changing our hearts to be more attuned to him and his will. So from first to last, right, this law is still valuable. 
and is still important for us in our day-to-day living. Next week, in fact, we're going to be picking this up one more time, specifically about the Ten Commandments as well. Because, Tim, the Ten Commandments live in this kind of weird no-man's land, right? Of <laughs> our, we, Most Christians would say, well, of course, I'm not under the law. But boy, those Ten Commandments still seem really good. Well, we want to kind of maybe more fully tease that out of how do we actually engage and live with these principles um, and apply the law to the modern life. Well, listeners, we hope this episode has been helpful in helping you understand that the law is a unity. The Bible always treats it as such. It has great dignity and value when we understand it as such. And so views that view it as a three-part law probably aren't doing justice to the biblical text and how it handles itself. Uh, Dr. Tim, before we close off, any final thoughts for our listeners? You know, I I think the one final thought that I have is listeners get in there and, and just do the work of reading it. Um, we can talk about the law all day long. And as we read through the law, as Brian mentioned, there are certain aspects of it that to us uh, seem to make little sense because we're not ancient Near Eastern people. And yet I really do believe as we engage with it and as we see, for instance, those laws in Deuteronomy 24, you can get the sense of, of the glory of it. And, and even as Paul says, there's a greater glory that we see in the face of Christ. Uh, we think of the usefulness of the law and its continued usefulness. And I truly believe that as we read it, um, we'll, we'll be able to feel and hear the Spirit's voice continue to speak through the law today. Excellent final thought. Well, listeners, we hope this episode has been helpful for you. Stay tuned next week for another great episode. But until then, stay cool and stay old. Stay old.